everyone to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jadgensen and I am co-host of the Book Talk series along with Finarn Jadgensen. Yes, uh, of the Greenhouse at University of Stavanger. And we're pleased to welcome today Pratik Chakrabarty, who's Chair in the History of Science and Medicine and Director of the Center for the History of Science, Medicine and Technology at the University of Manchester. And he will be presenting his new book, Inscriptions of Nature, Geology, and the Naturalization of Antiquity, which was published with Johns Hopkins University Press in 2020. So Pratik, please. Thank you. Um, thank you, um, Dolly and Finn. I wanted to start by thanking both of you for inviting me um, to the book talk. Um, um, it's, it's, you know, one writes a book in those dark corners, uh, away from everything, um, hopefully, but not always away from everything. Um, but it's a very lonely process, uh, writing a book. Um, and so it's a wonderful uh, opportunity to come and share uh, that book. So I'm grateful to you to giving, just not me, the, all the authors, the opportunity to share. It's one of the most rewarding things to do. You know, not that I want to talk about my book too much, but it's about that moment that you can share the book. The other thing I truly appreciate in what you're doing is um, creating this very easy, relaxed. I have listened to quite a few of these book talks and it's quite simple. You don't have to register. You don't have to you know, set up an alarm and everything. It's, it's a simple way to um, join the discussion. Sim uh, the recording is available. The website looks brilliant. Thanks for, I don't know who designed it. It looks easy and brilliant. So it's an easy, comfortable uh, space on and Monday afternoons or mornings, I think the timings have moved. Um, I'm not going anywhere. So I'm, I've, got, I've got a boring life um, sitting, but this is a moment of this intellectual life that I have shared with many authors. Uh, and that I'm truly grateful for. Uh, so it's not just me, but I think everybody appreciates what you're doing. It's simple, easy, but it's uh, intellectually stimulating. Uh, thank you for doing that. So, um, you know, I, it's difficult sometimes to present a book because um, I've finished a book quite some time back because the production system goes on and then the book comes out. So you have kind of, as a writer, moved away or moved on from the book itself. And, or the book has become quite different to you from the time you uh, one has written the book. So it's, it's, it's a way of me almost connecting back to the book itself. And so it's it's almost my attempt at remembering the key points and themes of the book. So I'm just trying to present uh, that kind of perspective uh, for, of the book itself. So um, the, I started writing this book um, as a conventional historian of science. Um, my basic training was in history of science and medicine. So, and it was uh, the, the book started off as a history of geology and deep history of India. You know how to write the history of deep history and geology of India. And, and the problem I faced in doing that, that the frames that were available to write the history of geology was uh, very Eurocentric. It was about European savants uh, discovery of um, geological science, you know, Cuvier, Lyle, um, De Saussure, and, and that's the frame. So whichever way I tried to twist and turn my narrative, it was going to be always a derivative knowledge that you know how that deep history vision unfolded in India what happened so it, it was always going to be a derivative um, notion and that's something that always troubled me of um, how to and I wanted to understand why it has remained so you know why um, that frame has remained so European in writing the deep history so that was my first kind of problem that I faced the second point that I found uh, quite interesting is that despite that very European frame of deep history and geology that one uh, knows is there's a deep entrenchment of geological way of thinking and deep historical way of thinking in India. Whether it's Hindu antiquarianism, whether it's a history of rivers, whether it's a history of tribal aboriginalities, histories of landscapes. So deep history or geology appears more as what I would say an adjective rather than a noun. You refer to it in an adjective form that there's a deep history of Indian Aboriginal, there's a deep history of Hindu antiquarianism. And so there is this duality of, of, a, of an actual engagement with deep history in India, but the frame is very European um, to write that history. So I was, I was for a long time struggling 
with that problematic. So the way I have tried to resolve that, uh, whether I have done or not is obviously up, up for discussion and debate, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> is by highlighting a process, which is, which is I describe as naturalization. And what I mean by the process of uh, naturalization is, um, so the standard history of geology is that as geologists, antiquarians started digging the earth and discovering layers and strata of the land, the land uh, appeared historical. So the, the history of the land became evident. So there's a historicization as, as Radwig talks about, the historicization, historicization of the earth. That is the, so it's the, the land or, or earth becomes historical. What I found was the process was the other way around as well, um, is that as the historicization of the earth was becoming evident, that the earth was becoming historical, there's a past of the earth was becoming evident. Our general understandings of the past, how we approach the history of landscapes, history of people, history of cities, history of rivers, history of canals was becoming linked to the nature. So every history was being drawn into the history of the earth. So there's a naturalization of every form of antiquity. History appeared more believable, more convincing, whether the history of, that is of history of myths, history of uh, people, history of cities, history of uh, civilizations became more believable or convincing when it could be linked to the history of the earth. So the history of the earth became the dominant uh, frame within which any kind of history could be appreciated. So this is the naturalization frame. Uh, and this is something uh, I have discussed a lot in the book. And I see that process taking place because in the European discovery of deep history and geology uh, in the 19th century, there was a key separation that takes place between what is natural and what is historical. There's a, uh, because the history of the earth belongs to the natural where historical documents, texts are not evident or not useful. That is what the earth history or arts inscriptions become the only way to trace that history. And the historical is where human history is located. And that division between historical and the natural is quite fundamental in <clears throat> history of science. I think even in environmental history of what the historical does to the natural. And that is that European frame that becomes dominant mode of thinking um, and I've, um, so the two key points I make, I'll, I'll come to the, um, the actual details of it. So, um, you know, as I talk, more ideas keep coming. So the two key frames that I see is that uh, that deep history, that the naturalization and the separation between the natural and the historical um, has a strong colonial element. It's, it's a mode through which um, almost Europe had huge deep understanding of landscapes, of people's histories, of genealogies, of uh, minerals, and all that. So that knowledge was as much as an intellectual knowledge, the history of the earth, as, as, it, uh, as it is a knowledge of, of commercial exploitation. So that deep historical knowledge is a deep colonial uh, embed, embedding, and, and that was important. The other point that I found is that in the, in the general narratives of the geological discovery of deep history, deep history appears kind of the natural. What I mean by the natural is it's not the political. It's, it was lying there for people to discover. It was all lying there to people to discover. So it's, a, it's almost a natural. So what is natural appears natural. That it was all, and I use natural in these two senses that the naturalization of the art was a natural gift of what was always there and we had to just find it. The point I've made in this is the deep history is a political choice of certain people having deeper history than others, certain landscapes having deeper history th than others. And that political choice is a critical way of bestowing and withdrawing time and, and temporality to certain objects and withdrawing it. And that's a political process of, of struggle of uh, rights over land, rights over myths, rights over history of who has more rights over the natural is, is the is the struggle. So that's a political choice. So um, just to finish, I'm probably talking for too long, is that I um, study these processes in two major sites in Indian history. 
Um, one is in the Northern India, um, where I, there's a specific uh, project that I study uh, that how the history of the art or the deep history began to override uh, existing medieval, Mughal, pre-colonial histories and the history of the art becoming dominant in, in that process. Even the Orientalist discovery of Indian antiquity, which started in the 18th century, increasingly became linked to the history of the art. So all the existing forms of narrative of the past became naturalized. And those which could be naturalized became more convincing. And those which could, or could not be naturalized, those antiquities were not convincing. And I studied through one case study of the history of, uh, of a canal, uh, the canal project that started in Northern India and how the canal, the digging of the canal, uh, as they started digging of the canal, they realized there's an existing canal from the medieval period. So the digging of a new canal became a restoration and an archeological project of an older canal. And then they realized that older canal was built on actually a riverbed. So what is historical and what is natural and that riverbed now becomes the mythical Saraswati, the Hindu uh, antiquarianism that that is that actually establishes the Hindu, Hinduism into the deep landscape of the land. So Hinduism becomes naturalized into that landscape. The other um, other project that I study is in central India, uh, where there were large, uh, there still are large uh, tribal Aboriginal populations, um, whom the British discovered. The anthropological studies started in the 19th century, and to quickly uh, summarize that point is, I study that how um, there was a struggle for a search for the most authentic Aboriginal voice, and there's a complex. And the, the way that that aboriginality of Indian tribes was discovered and explored was by linking that history to the history of the earth of which tribes appeared more embedded into the geological formation of the soils of the rocks whose memories, whose myths reflected the history of the earth could be the most aboriginal. So that political choice was critical in linking tribal history with art history and naturalizing the antiquity of humanity. That humanity has to be embedded in the layers of the, of the, of the soil. Before I finish, if I, I, I don't want to read any parts of my book because I find it quite self uh, difficult to read my own work, but I just wanted to show the cover of my book and talk for a couple of minutes. Is that fine? So um, I don't know whether you can see and whether you can see it in the other way around, so the cover of the book um, is a painting by an engineer, a colonial engineer, Robert Smith. And um, he's the main engineer who started uh, digging for the canal in Northern India. And as he started digging, he found the older canal. So he was the one who started the journey from a modern 19th century canal to an archeological project. And what that started was his huge interest in painting um, archeological sites. He started, um, one of the main restorations of archaeological remains within in Delhi, the medieval archaeological sites. And this painting is a painting of an old um, Mughal uh, structure uh, falling down and the tree uh, engulfing it. In a way, it captures the moment of a Mughal history movie losing out to the 19th century. So it's an overwriting of one history of another and one is a historical and the other is the natural. So it is the moment that of the historical becoming naturalized, that the tree becoming dominant and the crumbling monument disappearing that I thought captured the moment of this naturalization of antiquity. Thank you. All right, thank you so much. Um, and uh, just to remind everyone, let us know in the chat if you have questions and comments. Um, I thought I'd just get us started off then with, um, I mean, I, I think we're going to spend some time talking about the Anthropocene as a concept too, because I think there's some uh, I mean, very clear parallels here. I mean, this, this invoking geology as a way of understanding what is really going on here, but then seeing how that is, is so well entangled in all kinds of other concerns. Uh, and then particularly this, this colonial frame, I mean, this idea of um, uh, humanity, you know, the age of humans uh, and 
the people criticizing this concept and for, well, it's not all humans. We're not all equally to blame for, for this too. Uh, so I just wonder if you could just start perhaps by reflecting a little bit on that, um, how you, you see your book uh, contribute to that debate, if at all, or is it just a, in a way overlap thematically? Thanks, Ben. Um, yes, I, I th I've engaged with the problem of uh, how could I not, um, the problem of Anthropocene in that book, and I've subsequently engaged with it more. Um, so there is there are two ways, uh, there are two points to make about uh, the question of Anthropocene and, um, and what I'm trying to do here. So, um, and I'm not going to go into the details of Anthropocene, but it's about um, that humans have made geological changes. Uh, it's not just, so one problem, uh, one issue to discuss is how has Anthropocene changed environmental history? Has it really, is deep environmental history Anthropocene? Um, so uh, is it just an extension of time uh, or has an Anthropocene fundamentally changed environmental history? So that is one debate. I'm not going to even start, but it's, I'm just throwing it open. And uh, I think that uh, and you and, and Dolly are probably more um, equipped to address that question, but that's the one area that needs to be addressed because I think we can be absent-mindedly moving from Anthropocene to environmental history and back and that I think is a critical point, particularly from the perspective of the book, because geological mode of thinking is quite specific, uh, and because the non-human element. So, Anthropocene as a scientific concept is absolutely critical. We have there's no doubt that we have made fundamental changes, fundamental geological changes within the landscapes and the soil and the, and the environment. But the problem are, starts how do we use it as a historical concept. Uh, and that is where I struggle to use Anthropocene. And the only, uh, the two problems I have is if I write the history of nature with an Anthropocenic frame, I don't even know whether that's a word, but I'm just using it. Um, the conclusions are drawn that we have made geological changes into the earth. All I have to do is kind of do what Thomas Kuhn said, normal science activity, come to the same conclusion through different routes. And that is not uh, something that um, is intellectually very stimulating, that almost the framework is created and you need to fill up that framework. The other problem, the, I think the deeper problem that I have about Anthropocene is that it is based on this naturalization of antiquity. It is based on this naturalization of thinking. It is a very, it is a product of this 19th century naturalization of, of, who, of who is more natural and what is more natural. And it is, it, is, it is this, so I've tried to address that the only problem of writing an um, anthropocentric history is we'll constantly naturalize history. We will constantly write history that is naturalized. It is because we always have to go back to nature as the source of, uh, and, the, and the idea that the historical and the natural is separate is that what the historical has done to the natural or how the historical has it, itself become a natural force. So it's it's fundamentally dependent on the separation between the historical and the natural, which I have problematized in this book. So yes, uh, my quick answer is, I think the scientific theory is absolutely true, but I find it difficult to use it as a historical concept. And I, I think along with, um, with that and thinking about the comments that you started with, the other thing that strikes me is, well, who, gets inscribed into the geology, right? And I was thinking specifically about the problem um, that Western science has with non-settled uh, civilizations, cultures. Um, so if you're nomadic in any way, if you practice uh, transhumance, um, those don't leave the same traces in the layers, in the, geological strata, the archeological strata as, as a culture that stays in one spot all the time. So I was wondering in, in your case, um, you know, looking at India, how, is, how does that play out with who it is who gets inscribed? And, you know, you mentioned this Aboriginal idea and who was closer to nature. Um, but so is it, yeah, how does it factor in what kind of, of culture uh, is involved in, in the making of these uh, strata? 
it is a fundamentally important question. I'm not going to go into the great details of it, but I think, uh, thank you, Dolly, for raising that, this question of movement and, and, um, and nomads. And, and so because, and I've seen this, shown this in the case of India, but also South Africa, um, where there, um, the so-called Bushmen population were believed to be the aboriginals to the Southern um, Cape colony is, there's a brilliant story of, uh, there's a layers of digging and they find um, tools, you know, the stone tools, which um, in, the, in, the, in the layers of the digging, or, or as, as, they, as they were digging for a mine and all of these are related to mine, mining activities, gold and diamond. So as they were digging, they found in a certain layer, I wish I could show the image of the actual tools they were used. And they, they confirm, and that's the same confirmation happens in India. The tools are the same as used by the then 19th century Bushmen. So the Bushmen have evolved with the land as their layers of land. So there's a complete fixity in that their history. And the modern post-colonial nations demand that fixity. If you have a right to land, you have to establish that fixity. Um, in 2019, uh, the Indian government, uh, or the Supreme Court, not the Indian government, uh, the Supreme Court ordered that 1 million tribal populations should be removed from their forest lands. And it's constantly linked to who has the right to the land. So the only way one can claim any legitimacy to existence is by establishing the fixity. And so that nomadic, nomadic element about is not recognized when it is naturalized to certain fixities of land. So that creates a problem. Thank you. <clears throat> Yeah, I recognize that debate also from, from the north here with, with the Sami who are also, yes. I mean, very active in adopting technology. Um, but then you get all these discussions, you know, is this appropriate for them to do? So, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, we have yes, a question. And I think that debate has to take place not just in the colonial, but um, the Sami, the Inuit population, and all those uh, in areas that, that aboriginality and who is the first in the layers of settling and the right. embeddedness of that history into the land is quite critical. Right. We have a question from Peter. Unmute you there. Thanks, Pratik. I'm really looking forward to reading this. Firstly, I, I loved your explanation of the Anthropocene and its limitations, uh, which I think expressed very cogently some ideas that I've been trying to get together in my own mind. But great that you got onto the Inuit because that's exactly where I was going to go. And the first part of my question is this issue of if people start to act in a way that is at odds with the traces that are left in the land, can that then become politically problematic in that it can be interpreted as an abandonment of their original claim? And the case I have in mind are Inuit who decide to become coal miners. And that is a choice that is made and that's a choice that is embraced. But seen from the outside, I've seen a great reluctance for people outside that community to accept that they could really have made that choice. And Part of it, I think, is that it is so at odds with the legacy of Inuit life and this mythologizing almost of it as something essential that has persisted through time and remained rooted in a particular place. And for that to have changed and for a new relationship with place to have been forged, for instance, through mining, that then can be read as an abandonment of that attachment. And I'm very curious as to your thoughts about the political dimensions of that. Thank you, Peter. Um... It's a it's a it's a difficult question to answer, and I because of the political dimensions, and I uh, and I think I have a very similar story among the Gond populations of India, um, and the and the reason is that there's a mining, there's also a, a relationship with the land that is quite critical. The way um, I'm, I'm I'll begin to answer that question is what happened in the 19th century, um, and allow me to give you a story, tell you a story, it's a true story, but it, it's a historical story. Um, so that's, so at the same time that parts of the geological uh, landscape of the central India, which is Gondwana, you know, uh, the, the land of the Gonds was being discovered, the geological study was being taking place. Um, the same geologists were also doing anthropological studies among the Gond populations and studying their mythologies and their histories because they wanted to establish that, um, you know, there's a conflict, but they wanted to establish that the Gons were the Aboriginal populations and the true, uh, true inhabitants. Because after the revolt of 1857, um, the Hindus and the Muslims were appearing as new settlers and they wanted to go back to a 
core pure uh, race of India. So I'm going back to that. So what they did was, and this is where it's interesting, and I wonder what's happened happens with Inuit uh, stories, is that they collected start uh, collect started collecting the same geologists started collecting uh, stories of gond formation of life, uh, and and they, and it's a selective collection because I've read through the you know there are many stories uh, of the gond how the gond as a race was formed in the land, and they collected started collecting those stories and there's an amazing i could actually show you images that, that you know how gone stories of the land being created that there was water first then there uh, plants appeared the crabs appeared the soil appeared the black soil of cotton appeared is exactly almost similar to the geological formation of the gondwana land theory as it develops in the 19th century so and those gone myths became inscribed as the myths of the legends of the formation of the land. And it's recirculated constantly within that mythology as the formation. So there's a selective choice being made, which is then presented as true history because it's linked to the land. You know, the naturalization that, that only the myths that can be linked to the land are the true myths. Now, what is interesting, um, coming back to contemporary politics, and that's why my next project is going towards, I'm working with different people, is now, the Gondre uh, people are hugely marginalized within the mining cartels and, and, and you know, the economic uh, exploitation that is taking place. And there's a demand for uh, a new Gondwana region as, self, uh, as a self-contained region. But it's, it's very difficult because there are many other uh, tribal populations. So there's that purity is an imagined purity which doesn't exist. But they're using the Gondwana land theory um, so if you see posters of uh, Gond uh, self uh, rights movements, they're using Edward Suez's Gondwana land, uh, you know, the map of the Gondwana land. The DP were the original people of, it's a, it's a complete mythological jump, but it's that, so the point is that the naturalization, the landscape, the geology is an inescapable source of power and truth in our modern world. Sorry if that sounds very heavy, but that's the only way I can answer that question. But I think that's fairly common in, in this kind of nation building too. I'm thinking back on my own work, looking at the, uh, you know, the, what happened in Norway with historians after the uh, independence from Denmark, where they sought to the mountains, you know, the geology of the mountains. I mean, Ada was what Denmark did not have. So this was unique to Norway. Uh, and then, you know, with that move to geology, then they also started exploring the culture and the people who lived there and, and found also cultural history there. But but historians as, you know, yeah, I mean, they were imagining, they were making up a new national identity, uh, building on these things. So it's interesting to, to think about how, well, geology does the same thing too, because we're, we're used to think mm -hmm. of it in terms of, of history and culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my question is, um, how do how do things not that are not human factor into this layering um, and the way people thought about geology and geological layers? I mean, I, I've been doing a lot of animal history work and extinction work, um, and so I guess thinking about you know, this discovery of geology and that the earth had deep time, you do get to times that are not with people, um, but times that are filled with other things. Um, so how, how are those things squared uh, in, in thinking in, in the, you know, time period of this kind of discovery and, and making, naturalizing uh, geology in that sense? First of all, I've, I've read your work and you know the emotional and cultural choices of extinction preservation is a critical way. I think you have broken that, you know, the, um, the almost, uh, the, the almost uh, very naturalization of what is extinctions, uh, you know, that there's a political choices or not political, there's a choices made. And that's part of the conversations I'm, I'm trying to have is that nature has been created through choices being made. And even the natural is not natural. It's a, there's a choice has to be made. 
and and there's a politics of natural nature becoming natural uh, or appearing natural the the way i uh, i don't have an answer to the question but i i would ask that question as a good historian with a question and so I, my research question to that problematic is how far is the imagination of our, our imagination of the non human um, is defined by the separation of the natural and the historical um if you think of what gond meets with about the natural and the historical if you see uh, so for example i'll, I'll give you um, you know if you see indian um, traditional stories about the there are this story is a bit of detail jataka stories which is buddhas buddhas births several 500 births through um, in some several times through human for animal forms uh, that transhumanism is very diff different from the non humanism that is in the modern frame so there is a there is a there, there is almost a commensurability of uh transhumanism there is no dis disturbance of the buddha beca becoming a human and buddha being an animal so i'm just um, posing that question saying that how and then what happened uh, to come back is um again from the book sorry i'm just going on but uh, you are triggering ideas is uh, one of the you know the the orientalist discovered or talked about the puranic evolution which is um vishnu, uh, vishnu as a lord had different avatars in 10 avatars i mean each of them were a animal form and that entire uh, transhuman you know from animal to an evolution became naturalized as they discovered fossils of those animals and they and then it went through a darwinian interpretation of how these were actually evolutionary early evolutionary history so they almost couldn't exist anymore as an as an ordinary form of transhumanism that they can could only exist if they could be part of that evolutionary history of uh, of species geological species evolution so my problem would be that this transhuman or nonhuman could be defined by this division between the natural and the historical i'm 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 not going to defend it too strongly but that's my hint at your answer question No it's a, it's a great it's a great answer I think um and and something that makes you think about then yeah why should some things have a particular classification and need they have that classification um even when we look at the geological strata and we try and think about where our place is in that and where our histories are that yeah dividing it into um oh these are the humans and these are the not humans is problematic um on some levels mm. yes i just on that point um you know i i'm forgetting the details but there was this study a uh, couple few months back on uh in spain i can't remember of how early humans or prehistoric humans uh, hibernated and they studied animals several bats and other animals and then they studied uh, the inuits and the samis habits and not the other humans um and that is so some humans are more natural or more uh, on the other spectrum of having naturalistic tendencies than other humans uh, and that is where i think the problem lies of drawing this sharp line between what is what is human and what is non human um, and that happens every time that uh, so, uh, gons appeared more prehistoric there so the tools they used were constantly linked to the tools that were found which were supposed to be thousands of years old that these there is a direct correlation between so sorry it's just yeah so mica has a question hi thanks um i'm just wondering if you could go back to what you were talking about before in terms of um your next project and sort of like thinking forward um this talk has been really interesting and it's made me think a lot about my previous work um for the provincial government in british columbia um and sort of the catch 22 of colonialism that i saw at work a lot when i was there so um you see is obviously kind of unique in that it's governed by treaties it's, it's sort of there's a different state relationship with indigenous people there than 
you're describing in your book, but I think some of the um, challenges are the same. So like in BC, one of the arguments that the colonial government would often put forward is, uh, you know, if you allow even the smallest piece of development in your land, your traditional territory, then uh, that site is then disturbed. And now that it's disturbed, that sort of opens the floodgates for more development because you know now that it's disturbed, any additional development or work that's done on that land has a lower impact on your rights to that piece of land. And so it becomes, yeah, this, you know, colonialism is a, is a hell of a drug. It creates this catch-22. And we don't currently have a good way of dealing with this. Um, I don't think in any state with relationships with its indigenous people, I mean, as much as British Columbia is lauded for uh, the progress that it has made um, in those relations, I don't think that it has a, a good way of dealing with it. And so I'm really, really curious about your next project that you were kind of hinting at and what the potential policy implications might be um, both for this work and for that next piece. Thank you, Mika. It's, it's, uh, thanks for asking that question because it's, it's, um, it's, I'm more excited to talk about my future project than the, than the book, which is kind of um, in the back of my mind. Um, so uh, I think one, one interesting fact, and this is something I, you know, as Finn was talking about and Peter is what there's a similarity that happens almost every. It's not a, not a north south divide. The similar questions of land and human uh, relationships and the problems of that, um, whether, it's, whether it's British Columbia or whether it's uh, Scandinavia or it, in Gondwana or in Australia, that problem repeats how geological ways of thinking have defined human history. So. Um, on that point, uh, there's a very interesting story, which is again, I think very common and in the colonial history is the British drew a forest line through many forests and mountains in India, 1873 probably. The, you know, for, and this was apparently to protect the forest and the Aboriginal populations, tribal populations within the forest line. So, but it was also, uh, so that line was a, a line for resources. So. Um, within which the forest properties existed, which were part of the colonial um, extraction of, 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 of wood and other resources. But it was also a line in time within which the tribal populations were supposedly allowed to exist in the non-modern forms. So, so that line between uh, time and, and resources is I think a colonial pattern that uh, appears, and I think even non-colonial patterns uh, that, that appears in several contexts. Uh, you know, the forest line as a metaphor of what is a reserved area for the tribal populations and why it is reserved for. You know, what what are the resource implications and what are the time implications within that? So the project that I am doing uh, now or starting, and it's a difficulty as I was discussing because it's supposed to be involving travel is um, I'm working with uh, Alison Bashford in New South, University of New South Wales, um, Saul Dubo in South Af in uh, Cape South Africa and others in University of Cape Town. Um, as, uh, uh, as, and Linda Burnett uh, on, on the Sami populations, Anderson Burnett and Sami population is, is to, so the project is kind of called um, Reclaiming Gondwana Land, which is reclaiming uh, a part of a political struggle to reclaim that land itself, which is a true real political struggle of reclaiming resources, reclaiming land, but it's also reclaiming that history from geology. So how to write a denaturalized history of Gondwana land. Um, we don't know, so we, but we are connecting um, rights movements, resources, stories in different parts and trying to put them together to see if there's an alternative history of land and people can be imagined of out of outside that predominant geological frame. So, and we are, so, um, and Gondwana land is not necessarily a Southern. So it's although, although it's a Southern continent, but it's metaphorically, it reflects what we are trying to do. Uh, and please don't blame me for that. It's trying to use it as an, uh, as an alternative category of alternative histories. Um, so Gondwana land kind of remain, ex, ex, uh, exists in our mind as a way to write alternative histories of land and the relationship with people. Um, and 
It's the only geological formation I know which doesn't use a Greek or Latin name, which is actually, so Gondwana land is named after the Gond tribes of India. So that gives me an ammunition to say it's got its scope of writing a non-Northern, non-naturalized um, history. So it's, a, it's, it's, so that's what we're doing. Yeah, thank you. Okay, we have another question from Pankai here. Let's see there. Yes. Hi. Yes. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Hello. Yes. Hi. Hi. So uh, I want to ask you that you know you told that when in the mid nineteenth century, large scale digging started. So then you know mythical history and history of the past appear to be more sort of believing you know. And, and so uh, I want to ask you that how did you tackle the issue of overlapping history myth appeared from time to time, from ruler to ruler? So yeah, if you could reflect on it. Can I ask you uh, slightly more to elaborate on um, the overwriting of history point that you're uh, making? Yeah, yeah. overwriting, uh, not not writing, maybe you know, or coming out uh, out in you know, a mythical past, mythical history, as in you know, a different different ruler came and different different version of history came, myth, myth came. So how did you tackle that? You know, because overlapping happens over, uh, you know, across the era and across the ruler. So uh, so how did you tackle? You know, while you know, uh, as you said that you know, uh, once digging started on a large scale, so those. Uh, Oh, our myth and you know, believing on, uh, on a certain thing become more realistic uh, you know, you know, appeared you know, like you know, it's really, it, it was not a mythical, it's happened actually in the past. So how did you tackle that overlapping thing in that writing? Thank you. Uh, so, um, so, you know, overwriting of history takes place all, all the time and uh, it's not something that I'm saying that only happens here. It's it's the kind of overwriting of history that I'm referring to is, and I use the digging, the book starts with this line in the 19th century, they started digging the earth like never before. It's the period is, is in that digging. Um, so it's a specific kind of overwriting that I'm talking about, not, every, so it's the how um, the history of the earth as the digging and uh, the discovery of the, of the earth's deeper resources in terms of both time and minerals becomes such a dominant part of European um, existence in the 19th century, how that uh, overrides existing histories. Uh, and there are several examples is what appeared as a medieval canal, as a, most, uh, as a, as a um, canal built in the 13th century gets written as a Hindu river in that period. So, it is that kind of overwriting. And I don't distinguish Hindu antiquarianism from the Northern deep history because that uses, so um, the Hindu antiquarianism uses this geological mode of Northern antiquarianism yeah. and uses evolutionary thinkings quite effectively to establish its antiquity. So it is an overwriting uh, which allows certain kinds of uh, histories to, to dominate. And it's not just, the geological mode, but the geological mode is co-opted by what I say as a Hindu antiquarian thinking, because that is com compatible or it makes itself compatible with the geological mode of thinking. Okay. Uh, I'd like to ask a question about agency here, because we talked briefly about the agency of people and that while well, some are allowed more agency than others, if to, to reclaim that uh, or to keep that claim to uh, places and lands. Uh, but I'm wondering about the agency of land itself. I mean, because in this idea then deep time, it's also very slow time. So in a way the agency of nature uh, or the earth happens outside of human time. But you also see, uh, particularly now, or I guess in any present, you see very clearly also how also geology, earth can change pretty quickly and have pretty, a big impact also. So do you see some historical examples of this where, in a way, periods that we think of as uh, 
unchanging uh, or solid, you know, firm ground uh, was much more, I would say, contentious. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, in, in thinking about, I think, uh, like, for example, we just had recently a big landslide mm-hmm. in Norway, right? So you have this kind of, uh, you know, a long effect that you might see in geology, but there will be a a layer that's there, but it happens actually so quickly in, in human time. And how do you yeah, make sense of those kind of uh, fast and slow uh, earth processes in, in this reading? You know, how, how did the people in the 19th century think about um, the earth as both fast and slow? A brilliant question. Um, and, and I didn't put it quite like that in the book. And I wish, you know, now I go back and rewrite some parts of the book. But I think that's a fundamental question, the agency of the land. And I think uh, we have to stop thinking of land of origins of history of the land as a slow time. I think that uh, that is problematic because many of the events happen quite rapidly. And that, that rapidity of the event taking place in front of us changes the way we look at the land or the history of the land itself. And I'll give you two examples from the book itself. One is the Himalayas and, and you know the, the large Himalayas, the mountains, but it was also the discovered, it's quite a new formation. It's a relatively, it's quite a, so it la- looks grand, but it's not that old because the, the, the I mean, that study that, that there were other much older rock formations. And so that newness of the Himalayas as a formation um, was critical in how they imagined. Uh, there's a long history that, that they realized that there was the, the Himalayas had marine fossils so there were, uh, you know, that, that is the beginning of the discovery of the Tethys Sea that, uh, you know, Edward Suez talks about. So, so how, and the, then the, they realized that the Gangetic River Basin, um, sorry, I'm just putting, and the Gangetic River Basin and the Himalayas, uh, and the Himalayas were new. So the Gangetic River Basin is actually older than the Himalayas. So that history, so the, so the Himalayan River Formation is a newer formation than so the so there's a uh, there's a constantly uh, that how you know okay you know if you know the river uh, Ganges kind of flows from see the others from northwest to southeast and they suggested uh, when they discovered that the geological formation of Himalayas were much more recent than the older uh, than is that the rivers actually flowed from northeast to southwest. And the tectonic plate movements changed their entire, and that is how the the lost river of Saraswati, which actually flows from northeast to southwest, appeared as the most original river formation. So that so and, and I'll give me another moment. Um, the other is uh, in central India. You have the black soil, you know, which was famous for cotton cultivation. It's the same kind of soil, similar soil in Egypt, and they found similarities in Egyptian cotton soils and, and the central Indian cotton soils. But they then started uh, searching of why the soil is so fertile. It doesn't need any, didn't need any uh, extra fertilization. It was, so they realized there's a f- constant uh, sedimentation of organic life, and it's got a dynamic soil. And the geolo- there's an episode I discovered in the book, I discovered in the book where the geologist sees that there's a flood and, the, and the, there are life forms on the soil and literally engulfed the soil and puts them down. And that gives them the idea of digging and looking for fossils in this land. So that dynamicity of land and the agency of the land as Finn brilliantly put it, was driving them. Um, so I think we have to move away from land or, or history of earth as slow and kind of think of history of art as quite dynamic and that changes many of our perspectives. Thank you. Yeah, and so Anand pointed out in the chat here that you have very similar debates going on in, in evolutionary biology on punctualism versus gradualism. Uh, and in geology, you have catastrophism and uniformitarianism, which, yeah, it's, it sounds quite similar. Um, we have a quick question from Peter. 
This is one related to the fact that I look at places like Greenland, which don't have many people, and you look at India, which has got lots of people and a far greater level of diversity. And I remember being freaked out in graduate school when I first got to grips with the history of India and realised that I look at places where the die was rolled once. India, it's like it's been rolled a thousand times. And the question I have, therefore, is to what extent the human diversity of Indian history, you think, shapes the story you tell? Would this have looked, if, if I tried to come up with a similar way of thinking about Greenland, do you think there would have been structural issues that wouldn't have arisen that were that enabled you to tell a particularly rich story in India with that level of diversity? Hmm. I've never thought of it like that. But yes, I can see where you would come from, from Greenland to India. And that would be, in a way, that diversity is so organic or so natural. Um, um, as in the history that I do, that I don't think about it consciously, if you know what I mean. And probably the same way that you deal with the history of Greenland, uh, in the similar way, it's such an organically a land which has fewer people, that that question, but the, the, the way, to, um, uh, way to address that question is, in a more uh, effective way, is there was an attempt. So there is this, you know, there's a diversity of history, uh, questions of different castes, tribes, religions. And, and there was an attempt in the 19th century for different political reasons to kind of linearize that history or put a layers into that history and find out who are different levels of settlers in the land itself. So this that linearization of, of, of that history of people as geological studies, ethnological studies started. So that, uh, and that there's a, and, and there was a time frame created for different uh, groups. So the way that diversity uh, affects my narrative is I see that how there was a strata narrative and it's not me, Sumit Guha's really, I can recommend Sumit Guha's article on how strata and ethnography became critical in Indian historical thinking. You know, that article by Sumit Guha, if you just Google Sumit Guha strata caste, you'll find that article. But the linearization of strata and caste and tribe in Indian history, it's not my point, but it's, it's, I think that is how the diversity uh, is affecting my narrative. Thank you. I can put the name in the chat if you want. But... Yeah, good. Do we have any more questions from people? Because now's your chance. We are close to the end of our time, but we have time for one more. I mean, I just had a thought about that, about that comment uh, to Peder, and that is to say to Peder, well, it means that in a few hundred years, someone can write the same history because now there's coming more and more over layering of people in Greenland as well, right? So, so it, it is something that, um, yeah, I think you have a very interesting case in, in India where you do have this, these palimpsests um, this layering on top of each other um, that makes for a really rich, uh, you know, case to dig in the dirt um, with. So. All right. So we didn't have anyone else comment any questions. So I think we'll just wrap it up here. Uh, thank you so much, Pratik, for the presentation of the book. Uh, it sounds uh, like a quite interesting book that I'm also looking forward to, to digging into. Uh, and thanks to everyone for coming. Thank you very much. It's, it, it was really a great experience. Thank you.